Welcome back to the Refugee Report. This is the second episode of our two-part series on Israel and Palestine. Please listen to the first part if you haven't already. This episode's focus is the conflict and refugee crisis in the region. In recent years, the conflict has been filled with rocket and airstrikes, instances of political repression, and fights over land rights. As a result, millions remain displaced without a clear plan for resettlement. Before beginning this episode, we would like to give two disclaimers. The situation in Israel and Palestine is incredibly controversial. However, the purpose of this episode is not to take a political stance. This episode is meant to explain the refugee and humanitarian crisis in all of its forms. Please keep this in mind when listening. If you think there is false information in any of our episodes, please reach out to us and we will investigate it. Also, the following audio and descriptions may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. By the end of the Second Intifada, Hamas won the elections in Gaza and seized power in the area. Since then, Palestinian and Israeli militant groups have been stuck in a stalemate. Over the last two decades, there have been outbursts of violence and exchanges of rocket fire. Here is a quick timeline of these instances. In December of 2008, Israel launched a series of attacks over three weeks on Gaza after Hamas launched rocket barrages on Israel. 13 Israelis and 1,110 Palestinians were killed. In November of 2012, a military chief of Hamas was killed by Israeli forces. This caused rocket strikes from both sides. Six Israelis and 150 Palestinians were killed. In the summer of 2014, three Israeli teenagers in the West Bank were kidnapped, tortured, and killed by Hamas. Seven weeks of conflict led to 2,200 Palestinians dead in Gaza, and 67 soldiers and six civilians killed in Israel. From 2017 to 2018, the United States began to move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This, among other reasons, helped to spark unrest throughout the region. Palestinian protesters hurled rocks and gas bombs across the fence into Israel. 170 protesters were killed by Israeli forces. Also, a covert raid in Gaza killed seven Palestinian militants, and Gaza began launching missiles into Israel. This constant string of conflicts can be hard to follow. However, they generally follow the same formula. Usually, there is an act of violence committed against a small group of Israelis or Palestinians. The conflict then escalates as both sides claim to be acting out of self-defense. This usually results in an exchange of missiles and airstrikes. Then the conflict will end in some sort of ceasefire. This is exhibited in the most recent example. In May of 2021, the region erupted into violence for 11 days. Hamas and Islamic Jihad rockets streaking across the sky from Gaza. Sirens ringing out warning Israelis to take cover. The Iron Dome intercepting as many incoming projectiles as possible. The punishing retaliation of an air assault on Gaza targets by Israeli forces, pushing the casualty count higher with each cycle. Dimming the hopes for de-escalation of violence and exposing the harsh reality of a long-standing conflict boiling over into rage once again. This started weeks prior in East Jerusalem. Some Palestinians within this section of the city 
began to be evicted by the Israeli government. This led to widespread protests throughout the region. One of these protests was at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is a few hundred yards from the Dome of Rock, and it is a holy site in Islam. However, Israeli police raided the mosque in order to stop the protest. This happened during Ramadan. Then Hamas launched missiles and the Israeli government conducted airstrikes. After 11 days, about 260 were killed in Gaza and 13 killed in Israel. Israeli casualties were kept low due to the air defense system called Iron Dome that knocks missiles out of the sky. Nonetheless, this was the fiercest fighting since 2014. Both Hamas and the Israeli government have come under heavy criticism for the way they handled this outbreak in violence. Hamas was accused of blatantly targeting civilian areas throughout Israel. The few missiles that did make it past the defense system killed civilians in the streets. Israel has been accused of hitting civilian targets in Gaza. The Israeli government claims to only hit Hamas-related targets, and they claim to give warning to civilians before strikes. However, there is clear evidence to the contrary. Multiple airstrikes have taken down entire buildings with families inside who had no ties to Hamas. In fact, half of those killed in the recent airstrikes were ordinary civilians. A staggering 67 of them were children. Most of these instances of missile and airstrikes occur in densely populated areas. However, some missiles land in rural Gaza near the Israeli border. In these instances, it can be hard to figure out which side launched the explosive. Hamas has been known to have missiles fall short of their intended targets. But Israel has been known to be extremely aggressive in targeting Hamas figures, even if they're near civilians. It can also be difficult for weapons experts to fully determine where an explosive came from. This makes it unclear who is responsible for the deaths of Palestinians near the Israeli-Gaza border. In all, innocent civilians have been primarily the victims of these fluctuations in the conflict. However, the conflict in the region goes far beyond the occasional exchanges of missiles and airstrikes. There are major issues during periods of official ceasefire. Hamas has carried out numerous terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians. Sometimes these attacks are organized by Hamas. However, there is an increasing trend of lone wolf terrorists carrying out attacks in Israel. As recently as April of 2022, a Palestinian gunman opened fire on a bar in Tel Aviv, killing three people. In addition, Hamas has kidnapped numerous Israeli civilians and spread anti-Semitic rhetoric in recent years. The Israeli government has consistently violated human rights and international law in the West Bank. As mentioned in the last episode, Israeli settlements have been established in the area, and a large amount of the West Bank is effectively occupied by the Israeli government. The Israeli government has largely been able to do this through restrictive building and housing permits in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The requirements for these permits are often hard to follow, leading to massive evictions of Palestinians. All of this is a violation of international law, and it has been condemned by much of the United Nations, including the Secretary General himself. In addition, Palestinians in the West Bank are often deprived of due process when arrested by Israeli forces. West Bank Palestinians that are arrested have been tried under military law rather than Israeli civil law. This means they're tried in a military court 
and are almost always convicted. Some of those detained have been subjected to torture. In fact, there have been 1,300 accusations of torture filed with Israel's Justice Ministry since 2001. Lastly, Palestinian movement within the West Bank is greatly restricted. It can be incredibly difficult to obtain the necessary paperwork to travel between the West Bank and Israel. In Gaza, Israel has implemented large blockades. This has completely stifled the economy and has caused unemployment to skyrocket. As a result, more than 80% of Gaza's population depends on humanitarian aid. These blockades also mean that materials like cement are blocked from Gaza, since it could be used to build weapons. This is a huge problem because the airstrikes in Gaza create huge property damage. The conflict last May caused $380 million in damage. The lack of construction materials means that rebuilding infrastructure is incredibly slow. Furthermore, Palestinians in Gaza are rarely allowed to leave. Israel's requirements for immigration are extremely rigid, and only a very small number of people leave each year. Egypt also has a small border with Gaza, but rarely allows the entry of Palestinians. This leaves many Palestinians trapped in Gaza. Within this area, there aren't really places to seek refuge because the Gaza Strip is very small. It's about the size of Philadelphia. In addition to all of this, Palestinians also face repression from their own government. The popularity of Hamas in Gaza is incredibly unclear. This is largely because many Palestinians fear speaking out against Hamas. They've been known to arrest and torture dissidents. They also carry out executions without due process and they've created a number of repressive laws towards women. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank also has an array of sexist laws. Most notably, they don't have significant protections for domestic abuse. They also have tortured political dissidents, and they refuse to hold democratic elections. All of these things have forced people to flee the region. The overwhelming majority of these refugees are Palestinian. However, many are unable to flee the modern-day conflict. As mentioned, there are major restrictions on movement in both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. The majority of refugees who sought asylum in other countries did so during previous wars. The biggest example of this was during the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. As discussed in the last episode, over 700,000 Palestinians were displaced as a result of the conflict. Today, nearly all of them continue to live in exile. This has created third and fourth generations of Palestinian refugees. This means there are a little less than 5 million people living in exile. Over the past 70 years, these camps have evolved from a group of tents to full neighborhoods within Middle Eastern cities. One example of this is Burj al-Barajna in Beirut, Jordan. Listen to this BBC reporter explain the current conditions within the camp. It's been a long time since people lived in tents, but they still call this place a camp, even though it's kind of a suburb. The camp is tiny, it's only a kilometre square, and it's hemmed in. You've got Hezbollah territory over there, the airport just over this ridge, and the main city of Beirut just over there. It was built for 10,000 people, but there are four times that many here now including new refugees from Syria. The camp is crowded and dangerous. The wiring is lethal. 
dozens of people have been electrocuted. There are now third and fourth generation refugees living here, and at the heart of it all, a dwindling few who actually remember Palestine. The infrastructure problems faced by this refugee camp are actually incredibly unique. It was originally designed as a temporary settlement, but evolved into a city neighborhood. This means the infrastructure was unplanned. Today, this means there are loose wires everywhere. We'll include a photo of the camp in the description, and I highly recommend looking at it. Despite being in exile for so many years, many of these refugees still wish to return to their homes. Listen to this refugee explain his desire to be returned to his hometown in Palestine. I left Palestine in 1948. Israel had carried out the massacre of Deir Yassin. We were told to leave and not take anything with us. They said you will be back in a week. We left and that was our final exit. First they placed us in tents, then in tin homes and later in the slums. Even after the passing of more than seven decades, Salhani still yearns to return to his home in Akka. These are the keys to my house in my homeland Palestine. You think I would throw these away? Never. I would rather die there as a Palestinian than live here as a refugee. Unfortunately, most of these villages where these refugees were from no longer exist and were torn down. So any attempt at voluntary repatriation would still mean finding new homes for these people. All of this has created an incredibly unique refugee crisis. In fact, the UN response to this has been especially unique. Typically, the UNHCR is the United Nations branch responsible for tracking and managing these refugee crises. However, Palestinian refugees are assisted by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, also known as the UNRWA. This group's sole responsibility is managing Palestinian refugees. What makes this strange is that the UNRWA does not have the same mandate as the UNHCR. With other refugee crises, the UNHCR is expected to work towards a solution of permanent resettlement or voluntary repatriation. The UNRWA is exempt from this mandate. The group isn't even allowed to run refugee camps. Rather, they are limited to providing educational, healthcare, microfinance, social service, and emergency assistance programs. Throughout all of the research that I've done for this podcast, I've never encountered a situation like this. The system set up by the United Nations is truly bizarre. It's also worth mentioning that the UNRWA is a polarizing topic. Some American politicians have claimed that this is a political branch working on behalf of Palestinian independence. However, there is no concrete evidence to suggest this, and this UN organization affirms its apolitical status. This is to say, every aspect of this crisis is extremely complicated. It is a story of competing national interests that have turned ordinary civilians into victims of war. It's hard to end on a positive note since this conflict is likely going to continue long into the future. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, missiles were fired from the Gaza Strip. But I think it's important to dispel one myth. This conflict does not date back thousands of years. It only truly emerged in the past 70 years or so. Although the violence in the region is pervasive, 
it may not be as deep-rooted as you may think. So hopefully, with enough time, peace can be achieved in the region. Before concluding this episode, we would like to recommend an organization helping refugees. This episode, it is ANERA. This organization is providing humanitarian aid to those living in Lebanon. Also, this is one of the only NGOs that is allowed to bring humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. Their link will be in the description. That concludes this episode of The Refugee Report. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow us on Instagram at WartimeAid. Tune in next episode to learn about the refugee crisis in Pakistan, hosted by our new researcher, Ella Grant. As always, thank you for listening.